All right, you can all grab your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 3. If you have one of the Pew Bibles or one of the same printing of the ESV as me, it's on page 775 this week. And this is a good, uh, good reminder to us that it's sometimes really helpful to mem- memorize the order of the biblical books, because sometimes these minor prophets are a little hard to find. So if you know it's Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Mike, and Nahum, and you can list them off, then you'll know if you've, you're too early or you're too far. So good, uh, good reminder to know your Bible as well. But Jonah... Chapter 3, again, page 775. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Starting in verse 6 through verse 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, the things that are secret belong to you. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. By your spirit, open our eyes to understand your revelation in your word. May we know you and may we love you, that we would worship you and serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Even just taking a quick look at our world and our own hearts, one thing that I think is very hard to deny is the existence of sin. We all experience the effects of sin daily, just in the general nature of our world. We see in the news parade shootings, lies, people dying. We see the effects of greed and lust and hatred between men. We look at ourselves. If we're honest, we don't see much better. We see sin there too. And as we confess regularly in our church services, we sin against God daily by our thoughts, words, and deeds by what we do, and by what we leave undone. We don't love God with the fullness of our hearts. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. And in light of this reality, one of the most important things that any of us can ever learn in our entire lives is how to respond when we are confronted by the reality of our sin. How do we respond? The first option, I think, is to try to ignore our sin. But sin's not one of those things that we can make go away by simply trying to ignore it. It's not like you're a kid and it's an imaginary monster that if you just cover your eyes and close your eyes, the monster goes away. If you try to ignore your sin, even if you can ignore it, God doesn't. Perhaps the second option is to try to explain away your sin or to justify it. We can blame our sin on our parents or our genetics or someone else's actions 
Or we can try to show that our sin was necessary for some reason. Third, maybe we try to lessen our sin. We try to do everything that we can to to sugarcoat it, to make it seem like it's not as bad as it really is. Maybe the fourth option is to try to just be a better person the next time. And to hope that maybe the good that we will do will outweigh the bad that we have done. Then the final option, which I think is of all of these options, the darkest and most dangerous, is to try to convince yourself that the joy that sin gives you is worth it. You acknowledge it, you see that it's there, and you say, the pleasure that sin is going to give me is worth the destructive nature of sin. And the problem is that none of these options are going to work out for us in the end. Last week, we saw the prophet Jonah bring a strong warning to the people of Nineveh. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nineveh was confronted by the reality of their sin and the judgment of God. But instead of ignoring it, justifying it, explaining it away, or embracing it, they did exactly the opposite of what you would expect a city like Nineveh to do. As a city known for their violence, they didn't kill the messenger. They responded in the right way. They responded, as we saw in verse 5 last week, with faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. The Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote that the two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. Faith and repentance always go together. True faith in the gospel is always paired with repentance over our sin. Jesus himself preached this. In Mark chapter 1, when he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. However, if faith and repentance are the two wings by which the believer flies to heaven, shouldn't we find it odd that we so often talk about faith, yet we so infrequently talk about repentance? Even think about having a conversation with somebody. What do you feel more comfortable doing? Asking them and inviting them to believe in God or telling them that they need to repent of their sins. But if we're going to take sin seriously, and if we're going to take faith seriously, then we have to take repentance seriously. Nineveh in this passage is meant to be a condemnation of Israel. The people of God over and over again from the prophets heard warnings from the Lord. But so regularly, they did not respond with the faith and the repentance that they were called to. But here, this pagan nation of Nineveh, the people hated by the Israelites, are the ones who respond with repentance. And this is meant to be a warning and condemnation of us too. A call for us to look at ourselves and ask ourselves if we repent in the way that they repented. Again, one of the most important things that you will ever learn in your entire life is how to respond when you're confronted with your sin. And the simple message of this passage is that when you're confronted with the reality of sin, you must respond with repentance. You must respond with repentance. So we're going to look in this passage at the practice of repentance, leading in repentance, and the hope of repentance. The practice of repentance, leading in repentance, and the hope of repentance. 
So if we're going to say that we need to respond to our sin with repentance, the first thing that we need to do is be clear about what repentance actually is. So in our first section today, we're going to look at the practice of repentance. So last week in verse five, we saw a summary of the response of the Ninevites to the preaching of Jonah. They believed God and they turned from their sin. They put themselves sackcloth and ashes. And what we see here in verses six through nine is a fuller explanation of what verse five was a summary of. So verse five is the summary. This is in general what they did. Verse six through nine then walks through the details, a more detailed response to what Nineveh actually did. So what happens when we look at verse six, when Jonah preaches, is that we see the king of Nineveh respond. Now look at his response and notice the huge change that the king of Nineveh undergoes. It says that he rises from his throne, he removes his robes, puts on sackcloth, and sits in ashes. So where he is sitting changes, he goes from his throne to ashes. And what he's wearing changes, he goes from his fancy kingly robes to putting on sackcloth. So this is an incredible transformation of the king of Nineveh. It's an incredible act of humility on his part. This is not something that would have been normal for a king to do. Then the next thing that the king does is he issues a proclamation in verses 7 through 9. And he commands all the inhabitants of Nineveh, both humans and animals. I think it's interesting he includes the herds and the flocks in all of these commands. He specifically commands four things to them. First, he commands a fast, neither man nor beast are allowed to taste anything, eat anything, drink anything. So it's a fast. Second, he commands that they put on sackcloth. And third, he commands that they call out to God. And fourth, he commands that they turn from their evil ways. And in these four commands, I think we learn at least three essential elements. Yes, I mean three, because I think two of these commands go together. We learn three essential elements of repentance. Sorrow for sin, confession of sin, and turning from sin. So if you want to be very clear, what is repentance? What does Jesus call us to, the gospel call us to? It's sorrow for sin, confession of sin, and turning from sin. So first, practicing repentance means having sorrow for sin. So between the actions of the king and the command that he gives to the people, we see three things that all indicate sorrow or mourning. They wore sackcloth, they sat in ashes, and they fasted. All three of these things go together commonly throughout the Old Testament. There's many places where we see people doing two or all three of these things when they are mourning, when they are sorrowful over something. In Esther chapter 4, when the Jews learned that the king had decreed their destruction and their deaths, it says that there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So with the Jews in their mourning, fasting, sackcloth, ashes. And in our passage, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes specifically show us Nineveh's sorrow over their sin. They're weeping over their wickedness and their violence. When we're confronted by our sin, it should grieve us. It should hurt us. You know that feeling when you have sinned against God and you recognize it or you sinned against someone that 
that feeling in your gut, that sinking pain that you feel, that sorrow that grieves you down to your core. Thomas Watson says that sorrow for sin is not superficial. It's a holy agony, a holy agony. In scripture, it's often called a breaking of the heart. David writes about this in Psalm 51 when he says that God desires from us when we recognize our sin, he desires a broken and a contrite heart. Just think of that imagery, a heart that is rended, a heart that is torn and broken by what it is that we have done. In our culture today, I don't think we know how to be uncomfortable or sad. We make light of those things. We, we make jokes. We sugarcoat things. We try to put a positive spin on anything that we find uncomfortable. Take, for instance, the very fact that I think that our culture has no real equivalent to fasts, sackcloth, and ashes. And if you can think of what that is in our culture, great. You can tell me after the service. But at least in my mind, I can't think of anything in our culture that comes close to being an equivalent of fasting, sackcloth, and ashes when we are confronted by our sin. And even normal signs of mourning in our culture, like wearing black for a long time after someone's death, we've even done away with that. And we go to funerals and we, we celebrate. We want to be happy. We don't know how to feel sad anymore. We don't know how to mourn anymore, how to be uncomfortable anymore. And this affects the way that we repent of our sin. When we feel that tinge of guilt, we feel that sorrow of sin, we've been trained to run away from it as fast as we can to find the, the quickest fix that will make us just feel better. We don't know what it's like to really sit in the reality of our sin, to weep over it, to be sorrowful over it, to let it grieve us and give us a holy agony. And that's something we need to recover. As Christians living in this culture, let us be the people that show what it's like to actually sit with the reality of where our world is at and where our hearts are at. Let us be the people who mourn and who weep and our sorrow, sometimes we don't need to be happy. We need to feel sorrow for our sin, not just because of the consequences of it as well. We need to feel sorrow for our sin because we've offended God, because we've abused his love and his grace to us, and because we've hurt other people. We could do, I think, with more sackcloth and ashes. So practicing repentance means sorrow for sin, but it means more than that. It's not enough to just feel bad right? The second thing that we see is that practicing repentance means confession of sin. When we see fasting in sackcloth and ashes in scripture, it's not only a time for sorrow. It's also meant to serve another related purpose throughout scripture. It was intended to be a time of prayer, specifically a time to call out to God, to cry out to him for mercy and to confess sins. We see Daniel doing this in Daniel chapter nine. Daniel is mourning the exile of Judah and he cries out to the Lord and he says, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God and made confession. So we see in our passage as well that the time for mourning and sorrow is meant to be a time for crying out to the Lord. In verse eight, after the king is commanded the fast and the sackcloth, the king commands that the people call out to God mightily. This would have been a command for them to cry out to God for mercy, for God to pardon them, 
for God to turn away his wrath and judgment to spare them. This was a confession of their sin before God. And this is a habit that I think we need to train in ourselves regularly, which is one of the reasons that we confess our sins together regularly on Sunday mornings, whether through a song or a prayer that we pray together. We need to build the habit in us that when we see our sin, one of our first responses is to confess our sin against, to the person that we've sinned against and ultimately to our God. There's so much that I could say about confession of sin and Um, I'm quoting multiple times in in the sermon today, Thomas Watson from a book that he has called The Practice of Repentance. Uh, It's a great little book, a good resource if you're looking for it. He has a whole section on the nature of true confession. But I will simply say that our confession needs to be sincere. And I think that we know what sincere confession looks like. There have been times, I think, in our lives where we have confessed our sins to other people, and we know deep down that our confession was fake to them. There have been times when other people have said they're sorry to us, confessed their sins to us, and their sin, their confession wasn't uh, wasn't sincere. The confession was fake. I think we all have a sense of what sincere confession really means, so I'm not going to go into detail on that. But if we aren't content with fake confession to one another, let's not be content with fake confession to God. Our time for confession is not just a time to read a short prayer, sing a short song, say a few words, and then find hope in God. It is a time for us to be honest about our sin, to confess our sins with specificity, to call out to God for his mercy. So repentance means sorrow for sin, confessing our sin, and then lastly, it means turning from our sin. The decree of the king was to mourn, to call, and to turn. So look at the last command of the king in the second half of verse verse eight. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. True repentance always, it always involves turning from our sin and turning to God. We confess together the shorter catechism question on repentance. And in that we were reminded that repentance is in its action with grief and hatred of our sin, turning from our sin unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Repentance can never end merely at feeling bad for our sin, or even just confessing our sin, or even just not wanting to sin again. We are not repentant until we endeavor to fight against our sin and to pursue holiness, to turn from our sin unto God, And this isn't something that you do once. It's not just a thing that kicks off the Christian life the first time that you hear the gospel and you repent and you believe. And then after that, you've got your ticket to heaven and you can live however you want to live. Repentance is a daily practice of the Christian. Martin Luther famously said, and you might know this quote, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers is one of repentance. And we know that turning from sin is not easy. We know it's something that we never do perfectly. We know it's something that we're dependent on for, dependent on the spirit to do. But we also have to recognize that repentance is necessary. It's the daily and whole life practice of a true Christian. So the big question for you is, are you repenting? 
Are you repenting? Again, right at the core of the biblical response to the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for us is faith and repentance. Do a survey of the preaching of John, Jesus, and the apostles in the book of Acts and look at what their call to response is to the people they preach to. More often than not, their conclusion is to the crowds, repent, repent. And that is the same response for us. So do you evidence in your life? Ask yourself this question. Do I evidence in my life a daily practice of being sorrow, sorrowful for my sin, of confessing my sin and turning from my sin? And may that identify us and may that be true of us more and more in our Christian lives. And if that doesn't mark you, then the truth is it and the, the hard reality is that there is no hope apart from repentance. God calls us to repent. So that's the nature of repentance. That's the core of what it is, what it means to practice repentance. But this passage also teaches us more than just the practice of repentance. It shows us something very important about leading in repentance. So now that we've looked at the practice, let's look at leading in repentance. It's our second section. As you look at this text that's in front of us, I want you to notice the role of the king in the repentance of the city. It was the proclamation of the king that called the city to repentance. But the king didn't only lead the city in repentance by commanding them to repent. He led the city by his example of repentance. Before the king even issued the proclamation, he repented himself. He took himself down from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He put on sackcloth and he sat in ashes. He didn't sit up in his high throne, up in his castle, or whatever big building he lived in in Nineveh, and he didn't do whatever he wanted to do and then call out for the city to do the repenting for him. No, he humbled himself way below what would have been customary for a king. And he led the city, not from his throne, he led the city from the ashes. That's important for us. The repentance of the king of this pagan city of Nineveh is a huge indictment of the kings of Israel. Again, as I've said, book after book of prophets in the Old Testament warn the kings of Israel and call them to repentance. But time after time, the kings of God's people refuse to leave their sin. This Ninevite king is meant to be an example of what God actually desires from those who lead, from the kings of Israel, and what he desires from any of us who are in any position of leadership or authority. And to use a common phrase, Christian leaders are meant to be chief repenters. Christian leaders are meant to be chief repenters. Wherever you stand on the political spectrum, and you know that I very rarely mention anything uh, about our political parties or anything from the pulpit. And so I'm not making a statement, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, anything. Wherever you stand, it seems that in our country and in many countries, the one big no-no for any politician is to ever admit that you were wrong, right? Never admit you were wrong. If someone, if someone accuses you of something, explain it away, justify it, cover it up. The one thing you can never do as a politician is say, I'm sorry, I messed up. Let it not be that case in our churches and let it not be like that in our homes. We have this 
idea sometimes that to be in a position of authority means that we always have to have it together, that we can never show any weaknesses, to always lead with confidence. But God desires from us to also lead with repentance. And this goes for me as a pastor of this church, for our elders, for husbands and fathers, for mothers, any of you in any position of authority at work, school, wherever it might be. This Thursday, I got coffee and lunch with a really good seminary friend of mine. Um, He's in the process right now of studying for his ordination. And he is on the track to plant a church in Eau Claire, in our presbytery in the PCA. Great guy. Uh, His name is Ben Leatherberry, and he's actually going to be preaching here at Livingstone, filling in for me next Sunday. So you guys are going to have the joy of listening to Ben Leatherberry uh, as he preaches to us. And we're sitting down, and I have my Thomas Watson book on repentance sitting uh, on the table. I was doing sermon prep before he showed up. And so one of the first things that we start chatting about at Elsewhere, and we're sitting and drinking coffee, uh, is we start talking about repentance. And we talked about what it looks like to lead with repentance. As he's training to be a pastor himself, as I am a brand new pastor, just been a pastor for a month, what does it look like? How can we actually lead in this way? And as, he's, as we're thinking about that, he thought about his family and the way that he leads his wife and his children And he said something really profound to me that I quickly jotted down and I wanted to share with you. He said, there are many things my kids need to hear from me. They need to hear, I love you, God loves you, but they also really need to hear from me, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Parents, do you model repentance for your kids? They're not just going to learn repentance because you teach them the catechism question. They're going to learn repentance because you repent in front of them. When you wrong them, do you take your faults seriously? Do you own up to it with humility and honesty? Do you seek their forgiveness? And this is really important. When you sin against your kids because you are going to, and you do probably regularly, do they see that you recognize that your fault is not only against them, but also against God? Do they see that you model repentance before God? Do they see you praying to God with confession, with humility, and with sorrow? Are you humble enough to admit when you are wrong? Are you humble enough to say, I'm so, so sorry? And specifically, I want to speak to husbands, fathers, to men in general in the church. There's an awful tendency in our culture for men to be stoic and unfeeling. Husbands and fathers, be chief repenters in your homes. You are not a weak man if you shed tears over your sin in front of your wife and children. It is a godly man who sheds tears over his sins at the right time. And for all of us, whether you're a leader or you're not a leader, let us all practice repentance and reconciliation together as the people of God. It's one of the best ways that we can build up one another and we can encourage one another towards godliness and repentance. Something that should mark us as the people of God and as a church. Now, in a sermon about repentance, there's obviously a ton of talk about sin, about sorrow, about crying. But if I left you at the end of this sermon, 
with the impression that repentance is ultimately a dreary or depressing thing, then I don't think I have, I've represented repentance to you accurately. Repentance may begin with tears of sorrow, but repentance always ends with tears of joy. Peter, uh, in his sermon at Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 5, he said these beautiful words, and I want you to pay attention to the hope that he presents in repentance. Again, like so many of Peter and Peter's sermons and other sermons in the book of Acts, the call at the end of the sermon is to repent. And he calls them, says, repent therefore and turn back. Again, see turning and repenting going together. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice the result of repentance for Peter. Repent. Why? So that your sins may be blotted out and so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance leads to refreshing, to hope, to joy, to peace in knowing that our sins are blotted out. And there's a peace that we will never find apart from repentance. Sin gnaws away at us. Sin eats at guilty consciences. The way to find peace and refreshing is always to repent. And there's hope and there's joy in repentance because repentance acknowledges two things. And I mentioned this before our confession of sin. Repentance acknowledges the seriousness of our sin and it acknowledges the mercy of God in Christ. Again, to go to the shorter catechism answer, because I really think this is one of the best simple summaries that I've ever found of what repentance is in Westminster Shorter Catechism. It begins, repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner, notice the two things here, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So the motivation for our repentance is not just the reality of our sin, but also God's mercy. Look at verse nine with me. This is the last sentence of the King's proclamation. He says, who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The King and all of Nineveh repented with the hope that God would turn. Notice there's actually a repeated word here in verses 8 and verse 9. And that word is turn. Their hope was that their turning in repentance would mean God's turning from his anger. It's exactly the same word in verses 8 and verses 9. And that's exactly what the Lord does then in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. One other interesting thing here that I think is significant is that the word disaster in verse 10 is identical to the word evil in verse 10. It's both the word ra'ah in Hebrew, ra'ah. And it can mean either evil like wickedness or it can mean disaster like bad things happening to people. And so what it's saying in verse 9 and 10 
is that there's a mirroring between the actions of Nineveh and the actions of God. When they turn, he turns. When they turn from their evil, from their ra'ah, God turns from his ra'ah. He turns from his judgment toward them, towards the disaster that he's going to send upon them. Some people in these verses see that God ultimately changed his mind and changed all of his plans based on what the Ninevites did. There are some theologians uh, who hold to what's called open theism or openness theology. And they look to passages like this one and they say that because of this, because God turns from what he said he was going to do, that God must not know the future, that God's knowledge of the future is open. There are some some things that God knows certainly and some things that God knows only as possibilities as things that might happen if other things might happen. And I'm not going to go to all of the slew of biblical texts that would argue against that and point to God's omniscience, that God truly does know everything. But we need to see in this passage that it's not an issue of God changing or God not knowing something. As we've seen through the book of Jonah, even in Jonah's running away from God, God always worked his plan as the Sailors confessed, God did whatever he pleases. And as Jonah confessed, salvation belongs to the Lord. One of the major themes of the book of Jonah is the sovereignty of God, that God knows all things and is working in all things his plan. So it's not like this one verse goes against that theme of the rest of the book. And actually, our confidence is not that God changes, but that what we see about God in this text is always and unchangeably true. The core of the hope of what we see is that it is always and unchangeably true that when people repent repent of their sin, that God relents of his judgment. God always, and by his own character, always shows mercy and grace and forgiveness to those who turn from their sin and turn to him. And our hope is that that is not just true back in the 800s BC when this book was written, these events happened. This is true of God today. And God always works his plans and turns people to himself and always shows mercy to those who turn. So the Ninevites, they hoped in God and they hoped that God would turn and relent. But notice that they only hoped in the possibility that God would be merciful to them when they repented. The phrase is literally, who knows? God may relent. Maybe he won't, but let's cry out because maybe, maybe on the hope that God maybe will save them, that God will turn away. They rested in the possibility of God's mercy. As Christians, we rest in the certainty of God's mercy, in the certainty that all who repent will be saved. They repented with hope in God. How much more should we repent and hope in God? We see from an outsider's perspective that God responded in this, in this way. And we know through all of scripture and even what we read in our assurance of pardon, that it is God's nature to be compassionate, to abundantly pardon those who turn to him. And how much more should we who have Jesus, how much more should we who see in him the, the compassion and the mercy of God shown to us at the cross, How much more us who have something so much superior to Jonah in his message, how much more should we with confidence turn to our God? 
we can have wonderful peace and confidence knowing that if we repent of our sins and if we look to Jesus, that God turns away his wrath. So again, the question to you that you need to answer is, are you repenting? Are you repenting? And will you know the peace, the hope, the joy that comes from knowing God repenting? Perhaps the most beautiful sentence in the whole Westminster Confession, which is our our doctrinal standard in this church. Um, I don't know how many churches and and people, uh, how many different traditions of, of, of the church use their confessional statements as devotional material. But if you've ever read through the Westminster Confession, it's just its summary of, of biblical truth is just put so, so beautifully. And, and it's a great tool. I, I encourage you to walk through it. But there's, there's one sentence particularly that has always stood out to me in Westminster Confession chapter 15 on repentance. Now listen to this. It's so beautiful. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Just think about that for a second. When you look back at your past, when you think about the thing that you are most ashamed of, the thing that you think could most keep you from the love and the grace of God, hear those words. There is no sin so small, no sin that we commit daily that doesn't deserve the damnation that comes from God. There's no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. So as Isaiah 55 calls us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in our sin. Not left us with the torment that it brings upon us. You have given us a way of escape. Your son, Jesus Christ, through the gospel of his death and resurrection, that through faith and repentance, we would have peace with you. We would know you, be reconciled to you, and have the joy and the hope that comes through knowing you, our God. Help us to be people that are marked with repentance. Give us the humility to own up to our sin, and give us the courage to confess it openly, honestly, before you and others, that we would find the peace that comes in repentance alone in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.